At this time, our children, I'm sure, have already head out the door for Children's Church. I would like to say I love having young people in the church building. I love the, the busyness and the fidgeting. I love looking out and seeing, instead of seeing a cute little boy or girl's face, just two feet sticking up in the air. Um, never, I'm going to say this, never be embarrassed of your kids in the church building because we, number one, because we want them here. And number two, because anything your kid has done, my kid has done worse and on stage. So you have nothing to fear at this church with having your children here. We are going to be reading from Exodus chapter 28 this morning, as I mentioned. We are going to be starting in the 20th verse and finishing out the chapter. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 20. I know I'm throwing a lot of 20 numbers at you, but that's where we're at. Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 20. And the word of God says this. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Sidon, prophesy against her, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will be glorified in your midst. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgment in her, and I will manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence to her and blood to her streets, and the wounded will fall in her midst by the sword upon her on, by the sword upon her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And there will be no more for the house of Israel a prickling briar or a painful thorn from any round about them who scorn them. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God. When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom I have scattered, and I will manifest my holiness in them in the, in the sight of the nations, then they will live there in their land which I, gave them to, which I gave them to my servant Jacob. They will live in it securely, and they will, hold, uh, they will build houses, plant vineyards, and live securely when I execute judgment upon all who scorned them around about them. And then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Please be seated. Now I know it has been a, a little while since we have been in the book of Ezekiel. It's been about three or four weeks since we have got a chance to gather together and dive back into this text. And if you'll remember, at the end of the last time I, we talked, I said, we're about to see a major change in, in the message and in, in what Ezekiel is trying to say. Now, I can guess that if you just read what I said, or just read along with me, you're like, hey, Josh, you lied. Because we have been going through this book of Ezekiel, and it has been judgment and wrath and, and, and blood and swords and pestilence the whole time, and you're really starting to bum me out, man. And you just said this would be a change, and yet here we are again with more blood and more swords and more pestilence and more judging and more I am against you. Fair enough. I promise, though, things have changed. Because the recipient of this woe, the recipient of this, this prophecy and this oracle is actually very different than what we have had the whole point up till now. 
In fact, for the first time in the entire book of Ezekiel, we are beginning to see God shift his gaze away from Israel and to the other nations that surround Israel. In fact, as we look at the book of of Ezekiel, we are actually picking up in the last oracle, the last judgment of God to the nations around Israel that are not Israel, that are kind of, that this is kind of the capstone. This is the, the end of it where God begins to explain why he has been saying all that he has been saying. Now, there's an interesting thing about this passage. We can go back a few chapters and we begin to see how this, this, these, these judgments against all these surrounding nations begin to transpire. But, but one of the things that's interesting is, is we have to remember who the intended audience of even these oracles would have been. See, we might read these and on a kind of a, a surface reading, we think that Ezekiel is telling all the nations around Israel, hey, this is what you've done and this is what's happened to you. But we have to remember where Ezekiel is. Ezekiel's not in Israel. He's not near these nations. In fact, he is still in exile in Babylon, way to the east of where all of these other nations are. We have actually no reason to believe whatsoever that a single one of the nations that Ezekiel has just addressed in this this about three chapters of, of judgments ever even once heard the words of Ezekiel. If we take a step back, we might actually come to the realization that the reason that Ezekiel is saying these things is not for these nations that, that he is about to judge, but rather he is saying them for the benefit of Israel. And that's why we say that once we kind of shifted gears after, after our last time together, God is saying something very different and actually saying something that is intended to encourage, to build up, and to instill hope in the nation of Israel. But what is it that God is communicating? Why does God say these words to Sidon? Why is all of this going on? And, and I want to, to kind of help you understand what these judgments to the nations represent. The first thing that God is communicating to the nation of Israel through all that he has just said is that even when they are surrounded by their enemies, they have not been forgotten by God. You can look in your passage and feel free to flip through the pages, but all of these oracles and all of these judgment statements begin in chapter 25. God addresses six nations in total with Saddam, the one that we've looked at and we've read today, being the last of those six. He's addressed Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyr, and Sidon. And while those may not have a lot of meaning as you sit here today, if we were to build, bring up a map, which I wish we had our projectors, and, and maybe someday we're going to get those running again, but, but if we were to bring up a map, you would begin to see that these are all the nations that surrounded Israel. You would go, if you were looking at where Israel used to be, you would recognize on the map, and it would have, and I'm going to try to do this for your benefit and not mine, they would have there on the map, First, at the top, Ammon, then Moab, then Edom, then Philistia. And then up at the top on the other side, you would have the city-states of Tyre and Sidon. 
They formed a clockwise circle. In fact, exactly how God presented it formed a clockwise circle around the area where Israel, the nation of Israel, used to be. These were Israel's neighbors and also their enemies. God is addressing the enemies of Israel. In fact, he even goes on after our passage we read today to go into a much lengthier conversation and a lot much lengthier judgment upon Egypt, who is the historical enemy of Israel dating all the way back to the book of Exodus. It is interesting that all of these nations and all of these city-states had a history with Israel. And more often than not, it was one of hostility and war and fighting, often over the land, but also supremacy of the gods of these nations. If we look through God's oracles to all of these other nations, we begin to notice a theme that what of the reason and why they were doing these things. See, all of these other nations had celebrated Israel's fall and the destruction of Jerusalem. They were excited that, that Israel had finally been completely vanquished, that the temple had been destroyed, that Jerusalem had been leveled, and they were cheering in the streets over the fall of their enemy. And it would be this reason that they were now going to be judged by God. To give a little context, you can flip the page and look at Ezekiel 25, verse 4. And God says this through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, Say to the sons of Ammon, Hear the word of, word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, Because you said, Now listen, this is what they were saying. Because you said, Aha! against my sanctuary and had profaned and against the land of Israel when it was made desolate and against the house of Judah when it went into exile. Now that word, aha, that was a, we don't do that. We don't say, aha, but that was there. All right, about time, sweet. That was their exclamation of joy. When we think of aha, we think of some campy superhero jumping on the scene and going, aha, but that's not what it was. But this was their cry in the streets. This was their huzzah. They were excited and they had cheered because of what had happened in the, to the temple and in Jerusalem and to the nation of Israel. They cheered for the, the, the sons of Judah going into exile. They shouted with joy that the walls of Jerusalem had come down and were in ruin. And they, they cheered and roared in the streets because the temple of God had been utter, utterly decimated. To them, it was not only a victory for them, but it was a victory for their gods. They said, Israel has Yahweh. And Yahweh has been a problem from us from the beginning. But look, Yahweh has been defeated. Ooh, that, that probably gave you a little bit of goosebumps, didn't it? Because we don't say stuff like that. And the people like Ammon and Sidon are going to learn very quickly that they shouldn't say stuff like that either. If we think about it for just a second, I want you to kind of... Put yourself in this, the, the shoes of Israel. Israel is surrounded by people who want to see them fall. They want to see their, 
failure. In fact, they will cheer and clap and rejoice when they do fail. And not only this, but now that they will, do, they know, we know that they will do everything in their power to make sure that Israel stays down. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever experienced something similar to that? Have you ever felt like there were people in your life, maybe a lot of people, maybe it was all the people you work with, maybe it was all the people you went to school with, and they were just waiting for you to mess up so that they could pounce. They were looking for an opportunity to fire you or to make you look bad in order to make themselves look good or to make fun of you or to belittle you. Have you ever, let's be honest for a second, have you ever been at a family function and you recognize very quickly, maybe it's because you're the crazy Jesus person in your family. And you showed up to the family function because you were the crazy, the crazy Jesus person in your family. You got watched like a microscope and one false move, one bad thing, one crossword, and you knew they were going to pounce on you and just make you feel this big. That's probably how Israel felt. And now in this moment and at this time, judgment had come because they had messed up and they had sinned against God. We spent time this morning in Sunday school class with Daniel praying to God and owning up and confessing the, the sin and the failures of Israel. They were undeniable. And odds are they're undeniable in our life too. Our sin and our mess-ups and our failures and our selfishness. And they had pounced and they had seen it and now they cheered in the streets for the failure and the fall of Israel. Well, there's good news in these times. And there's good news even in the times where we do fail and we do mess up and we do feel like everyone is cheering and celebrating our failures. Because just like Israel could be surrounded by their enemies and yet still be confident that God had not abandoned them, so too we can have confidence that even when we are surrounded by people who want to see us fall, who want to see us fail, even when we do fail and they seem to celebrate and rejoice over our failures and our mistakes, have faith, brother or sister, because God has not abandoned you, nor has he completely given up on you. That is wonderful news. And when God begins to go through all of the nations and say, all of these nations have, have cheered at your fall and rejoiced in, 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 your, in your punishment and they, they, are, they want to, to heap it on upon you and take advantage of it. And ultimately what God is saying, and they want to profane my name for what I did. He says, they're going to get dealt with. They're going to experience the judgment. I am sovereign over them, just like I am sovereign over you. Brothers and sisters, even in the midst of our own disciplining, when we are going through hardship for the sake of God's kingdom and for the sake of our own building up as followers of Jesus, we can know that God is still with us. Now, I bet everyone here in the last couple of years has gone through some hard times. When we talk about COVID-19, when we talk about all that's happening in our lives, 
I don't think there, I, I would be in shock if there was even one person in this room that was spared hardships in the last couple of years. We've lost loved ones. We've lost jobs. We've seen family stress. We've seen marriages end. We've seen kids rebel. We've seen our lives turned upside down. And sometimes we get so overwhelmed and we feel that no matter where we go, there is struggle. There is struggle when we walk in the door of our homes. There is struggle when we walk in the door of our work. There is struggle when we, we show up at our kids' practices. There is struggle when we go to, to be with our friends or to, to go to our clubs or whatever it is, and we feel like we are completely surrounded and, and, and that we are just struggling and that we recognize that we are going through some hardship in our lives. You are not abandoned. You were never abandoned. In fact, one of the neat things about this passage is even though all the people on the outside thought that Israel was failing and falling and that their, their time was over and that they were going to cease to exist, all that was happening is God was disciplining his people so they might turn back to him. What about you? When you think about the last couple years, when maybe you think about what you're going through right now, do you hear in the very faint whisper of all of your hardship and all of your struggles that God is calling you back to Him? Trust me. Rely on me. Find your wisdom in me. Find your purpose in me. Find your identity to me. Return to me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Can you hear it? Might be a good time to go to the Lord in prayer and let's part of that time in prayer to be just shut up and listen. I know pastors aren't supposed to say that, but I'm going to. And listen to God call you back to himself to renew the joy of your salvation. That you might know him and that you might walk with him and that you might be restored back to him fully. As I thought about this, I was reminded of what, what Paul wrote to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 8. And I want to read just a little bit from you, starting in verse 35. And he says this, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Now, wait a second. These are the things that we've been reading about. These are the things that Israel had gone through. These are the things that, that all of the surrounding nations are about to, go to, about to go through. This is exactly what has happened to Israel in the Old Testament. And Paul is talking about the church in the New Testament. He's saying, listen, we're going to go through some stuff. We're going to go through persecution. We're going to go through distress and tribulation. We're going to go through famine and nakedness and peril and sword. We are going to struggle. But then he goes on to this, say this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You might be going through it right now. 
you most certainly have gone through it in the last few years. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of God. Now, sometimes his love is tough. But it's still love. And he's still working. And he has not abandoned you. Not only are we reminded through all of these oracles to the surrounding nations that God has not abandoned Israel, but also we are reminded that God will ultimately deal with our enemy. Our passage is interesting because it actually never tells us what the city-state of Sudan actually did. This is the only one of all of them where he really doesn't say what they did. He just says, Behold, I am against you, and I will be glorified in your midst. We're kind of left to assume that they had done what all the other nations had done. Maybe even specifically, they had done what kind of their sister city had done, which was Tyre. T-Y-R-E, you can pronounce it however you want. You can say Tyre, it's Kentucky. Probably is how you say it, and I'm, just, I'm the one saying it wrong, so I'm trying to sound intelligent. You're laughing because you think Josh thinks he's intelligent. But probably a lot more similar to them and what they had did. And I want to just give you an idea of what they had done. This is Ezekiel 26, verse 2. Again, all you have to do is flip the page if you want to look. Ezekiel 26 verse 2 says this, Son of man, because of Tyr has, because Tyr has said something concerning Jerusalem. They said, aha! But remember, we're talking about huzzah! Hooray! He says, aha! The gateway of the people is broken. It has been opened to me. I shall be filled now that she is laid waste. Now, this is a slightly different perspective than Ammon. See, Ammon was just happy that Israel had been destroyed. But, but Tyre, Tyre, they looked at it from a very different angle. See, they looked at it and they said, Oh, this is great news because this is an opportunity for us to become even more of the dominant economic superpower in the area. That's what they saw. This city was actually kind of a neat city. It was right on the water. It was a port city. It was essentially an island. There was only one way to get to it. And so they were able to fortify their city so that they seemed almost unstoppable. In fact, as you go in, you'll recognize that, that God has a lot to say about this city and all that is going to happen. And then even goes on to say more about this city because they said that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to spend a lot of his men and it is not going to to end up being as profitable as a campaign against this city as other cities so God gives them another city in order to make their money and make their spoil they plan I want you to think about this this city Tyre and also I think Sidon as well they planned to exploit Israel and scavenge away any resources that was left they were going to kick them while they were down and make sure they stayed down and exploited. If God had actually abandoned Israel, then these cities would have had no trouble in doing that very thing. They were too powerful, they were well-connected, and Israel would have been helpless against all that they could have done. But God, on the contrary, is declaring that they will not succeed in their plan to exploit 
and ultimately annihilate the nation of Israel. On the contrary, God is going to judge them. And in his righteous judgment, God is going to annihilate them. The very thing that they hope to do for Israel is the very thing that God is going to do to them. He is going to bring about pestilence and the sword at every side. The idea there is that the armies of Nebuchadnezzar are going to surround these cities so that they have nowhere to turn. And they will lay siege to the city so that by the time it is all said and done, they will be nothing but sick and starving and waiting for the sword to come and get them. See, God is going to deal with the enemies of Israel. And he is going to do to them what they wanted to do to Israel. And I want you to understand this. This is true for us, but only if we have the right perspective. See, it is not in the nature of the Christian to want to do harm to other people. And if you and your hope in the Lord is that God is going to somehow smite your enemies, which are people, then you have missed the point of Christianity. If you look at your relative or your coworker or, or that person that you're in competition with for whatever reason, and you say, God, give them COVID, you've missed the point. See, we need to remember who our enemy really is. We need to remember who our enemy as the church actually is. And and this may come as a shock to you, but it's not Russia. The enemy of the church is not Russia or any other political power in the world. The enemy of the church is not a particular political ideology or a certain group of people. It is not fans of Duke or North Carolina or even Kansas. It is not any individual in our life, not the person that cut us off on the road, the co-worker that makes your job miserable, the Karen that shows up in your work. It is not any of these people. In fact, we need to take a moment and take a step back and we need to actually look at who our enemy is according to Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read these words. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is God's victory ultimately going to be over? It is not the Democratic or the Republican Party. Who is God's victory ultimately going to be over? It is not Russia. It is not China. It is not North Korea. It is not Canada. Oh, Canada. No, God's victory, the one who is going to be swallowed up, the one who is going to lose all power to be vanquished is sin and death and the grave and ultimately the enemy that we know as Satan. So make sure you know who your enemy is. Those people that make your life hard, those people that are driving you nuts, those thoughts and those stresses and all those things that are trying to pull you away from God and living for him, those are not your enemy. They are tools of your enemy that you need to liberate. We have an enemy. And his name is Satan. And he uses sin and death 
to create us pain and sorrow. But make no mistake, God has and will destroy our enemy. Sometimes I see Satan get a victory. Sometimes he gets a victory in my mind. Sometimes he gets a victory in my life, my behavior. Sometimes he gets a victory in the lives of the people I love. Sometimes he gets a victory in the world. I see it. We all do. He may get one little pity, piddly victory here and there that can be undone in an instant. But when we look to the scripture, we recognize that God already has the victory. Because Satan's biggest we weapon, his all-time number one favorite thing was death, and Jesus Christ defeated death when he rose from it. See, God is already victorious. It's just Satan and all his little punk demons don't know it yet. And we have confidence in that. The last thing we see in our passage that I think is so important is that he promises Israel that they will dwell securely in the land that he's promised them. Our passage ends with this promise of Israel to Israel that one day God is going to bring them all back to the land that he's promised them. And even though all of these people surround the land that are the enemies of him, that, that, that cheer when they fail, and he says, you will go back home, and when you are there, you will have nothing to fear. You will dwell securely with no fear of anyone ever messing with you again. Now, make no mistake, Israel thought that meant we're going to go back to the promised land, we're going to go back to Jerusalem and all the areas around there, and when we get there, everything's going to be gravy, and we're going to have all, you know, milk and, 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 and honey, and everything's going to be great, and we're going to be there. And that is true. But there is actually more to this than even we can comprehend today, and there was more to it than what God was even saying at this time. In fact, we can look at the Scripture and begin to realize that God's promise of restoration is not just one about one group of people in one nation, but God's promise of restoration is for all of creation. Isaiah speaks about this in, in Isaiah 25, and I've got to be honest with you, this was one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture I've read recently. Listen to this. Isaiah 25, picking up in verse 6, we read this. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all people on this mountain. The banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which has been stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all the faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we've waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. See, this promise, this isn't just for Israel. This promise is for all the nations. That one day all the nations will be gathered together. 
And I know we're Baptists and we get really excited about things like banquets. And I know we're Baptists and we get really nervous about things like wine, which got mentioned twice. But trust me, it's going to be good. And it ain't going to be Welch's, I'm sorry. But he says, I'm going to gather them all together on this mountain. And this is Jerusalem. This is the mountain of God. He says, I'm going to gather them all there and I'm going to remove the veil. And the covering which is over all the people. Guys, if you want to know what that veil is and what that covering is, that's sin. God is going to take all the people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's going to remove the cloak and the veil and the darkness of sin away from them so that finally we will be able to see God clearly and see his ways clearly. And when that veil is removed, death will be no more and we will be with God for all eternity, praising him as the God of our salvation. There will come a day when we will never have to fear a nation like Russia, a virus like COVID, a disease like cancer, or even the death that comes with old age. We will fear nothing because we will be with God. And in that day, he will be our God, and we will be his people, and we will worship him as the God of our salvation. It is a restoration. It is a restoration to the way that God created us to be, in fellowship with him like Adam in the garden. Only this time, we won't mess it up. And we will be with him, and we will enjoy him forever. But that promise is only for those who place their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Please understand that. We have a hope, and we have a future, and we can have confidence no matter what the world might throw at us. But we only have that if we place our hope and our confidence in Christ. If we recognize like Israel needs to that we have sinned against God and we deserve the wrath and judgment, but instead of, of just continuing on in, in, in that wrath and in that judgment, we cry out to the Lord and we say, Lord, I am a sinner and I need saving. I don't think it's a mistake that in, in, in Isaiah's passage, he so, says, this is the Lord whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation because it is he who saves you and he has saved you through Christ who lived the life we couldn't live who died on the cross for our sins and who rose from the grave three days later and the Bible says very clearly if we will confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead we will be saved And when we are saved through Christ, even when we are surrounded by enemies, we can have confidence. Even when we think the enemy is victorious, we know they've already lost. And no matter what happens, we know that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
If you have not made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, all I can say is what on earth are you waiting for? Let today be the day that you surrender your life to Christ and you put that hope in your life. Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. God, we stand in all of your goodness. Lord, we stand in all that even in a whole set of chapters and a whole set of oracles of of judgment and woe, we recognize that in the midst of all of that, you are calling people to yourself. That you are bringing people to a point where they will recognize that you are God. And even though you are a righteous and just God, you are also a gracious and loving God. And because you are both these things, you sent your son, Jesus. And he became the one who bore the wrath of your justice so that you might also extend your grace and mercy to people. Father God, I pray that if there is anyone in this room longing for that security and that hope that can only be found in Jesus, God, I pray that today is the day that they surrender their lives to him. Lord, we recognize that we are sinners and that our sin leads us to a place of brokenness. And when we stay in that place of brokenness, our fellowship with you is is broken. But God, we look at the scripture and we see the good news of the gospel that you are going to send your one and only son because of your love for us that he might remove the veil from all the nations saving them from their sin and allowing them to dwell with you forever. God, that he did that when he died on the cross and he was buried and he rose three days later. And God, I pray that all of us in this room might surrender our lives to him, that we might make Jesus the Lord of our life and that we would turn from sin and believe that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Lord, we know that salvation is found through this. And God, I pray that everyone in this room will one day stand at this feast with a glass full of wine, singing praises to the God of our salvation. And Lord, I pray that this is the message we take to the nations. So the table will go on as far as the eye can see. God, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.